0: Hey everybody, welcome to Listen Money Matters. The more money you have, the more money you want. My name is Matt, and I'm here as always with Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking?
1: Good, dude, good. good. Uh, except that my Nutribullet is empty, That's so I have to I have to get myself some more liquid soon. Okay, my um, Camelback is leaking. Why does this thing leak? Do you know? I, does yours leak? I have two, dude, and uh, they never leak. Like, I, what is it leaking out of? The, the, the nipple at the top. That's what she said. It's, 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 like, it leaks out onto the table. Like, it, it's, not, it's
0: standing upright. I don't get it. Is your water carbonated? No, it's not. It's just like it bubbles up. Like, maybe it's the heat. Who the hell knows? I don't get it, but I have water. You're having difficulties too, I'm having difficulties. <laughs> God. Anyway, uh, today's catchphrase is the more money you have, the more money you want. And that was sent in by Ricks Ross. And uh, you can send those into our Twitter account. It's at Man, That is us. Uh, you can also send it into our Facebook page. It's Facebook.com listen money matters. And we're getting catchphrases from all over the place. So at this point, wherever, but Twitter is uh, definitely easier for me to correlate, right? Correlate, uh, c- collect, and put into Evernote for us to use on the show. Anyway, um, let's get into what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be an investing episode get that started. And uh, we have a guest on the show today. His name is Steve Sears, and he's the author of The Indomitable Investor, Why a Few Succeed in the Stock Market When Everyone Else Fails. Steve, how are you today?
2: Fantastic. Great to be with you guys.
0: Uh, and when did you write this book?
2: 2012.
0: Oh, it's Okay. So I guess the big question is, why do only a few people succeed while everyone else fails? Because it seems to be the case, right?
2: Yeah, most absolutely. And the reason why uh, few succeed when everyone else fails is that most people go about this the uh the exact opposite
0: now um see all right so i've i've re- we've done a couple episodes about um you know uh active trading and how that's bad and and uh you know we're, we're more of a buy and hold kind of crowd here yep. and th- there's this there's this whole thing about like too much data can be a bad thing right. uh so so what is it that why, why is it there, – there, there's a few. like Why Warren Buffett? How come he's so just awesome and everyone else like sucks at this? <laughs>
2: because he often does stuff that uh, no one else really has the guts to do. So Warren Buffett, for example, buys fear. Mm. When everyone's freaking out and the stock market's down like it was yesterday, and somebody like Warren Buffett would go in there and buy stocks when everyone else is freaking out because of what they hear on TV or on the radio. They almost do the exact opposite. As I say in the book, the successful investors lead a life of counterintuitive thought and action. Most people just sort of go along with the market mob, and that tends to be what, uh, what clips them. Right. It's, good to, it's good to hear that you guys favor the long-term investing, but the fact is, and a lot of research shows this, that there are very few long-term investors. Warren Buffett is a, is a long-term investor, of course, and there are many other examples your typical investor is in and out of the market like somebody with ADHD.
0: Yeah, and why is that? Like, what, what what's what's in the, what goes on in their head that makes them act this way?
2: They respond to the market mob. It's it's you know, a bull market is extremely uh is extremely seductive, hmm. and so you, you flip on the TV, which is where a lot of people get their news, or you read uh, stuff online, or on the radio, or on the web. And if you hear about stock XYZ going to the moon, most people think, my goodness, I want to go along on that ride. They don't do the most basic uh, analysis such as saying, well, what's the stock trading at? What is, you know, what are the earnings uh, look like? What does the street look think of it? How is how are major investors positioned? They just jump in, they just jump into it because it feels good, the idea of making money. Uh, it stimulates this region of the brain, I get into this in the book a little bit, called the nucleus accumbens. It's so like when, at the end of the day, if uh, if you mix up something more potent in your neutral bullet, <laughs> what it does is it stimulates like the reward circuitry of your brain. And it feels good and you relax and, and, uh, and you have a good time. The idea of making money does the exact same thing. And uh, so many people are sort of just wired now in such a way by this constant 24-7 media culture to, to, to be constantly on. And so if, if you go in and you throw down you know $500, $10,000 on a stock, whatever your net worth allows, it feels good to see this big stock. You get in on this big excitement, this mania, if you will, and you think, my, my goodness, the thing's going to keep going up because you, everywhere you go people talk about stock XYZ is headed to the moon. Well. The counterintuitive um, response to that is, is that the professional investors, the people who succeed, look at the mania, they see it on TV, they read about it in the newspaper, and they say, well, this is probably as good as it gets, at least for now. So these fellows who did the research and bought low sell high. John and Jane Investor did not do the research, they buy high. So you, have, you guys ever heard the phrase the slope of hope? No. <laughs> so, things, So, if you can imagine in your mind, you have like an upside down V, right? Mm-hmm. Most guys buy right at the top, right when it peaks. And then it slides down that sort of other side of the V. That's the slope of hope. And so, what happens is the hot stock stumbles, goes down the slope of hope. The average investor says to, to his or herself, um, Well, I think it's going to come back. And there'll be a lot of media, con- there'll be a lot of commentary on the street and elsewhere about it. And it's not until the thing takes a dirt nap at the the bottom that these investors panic. Because by then, the hope of making a bunch of money, the excitement about being on this sort of moonshot is uh, overshadowed by by the fact that they've lost a lot of money and they sell in panic. So you you take guys like the, the, the successful investors, these indomitable investors, they're selling up at the top to retail and they're buying at the bottom when retail panics. Now, we see this pattern happen again and again and again, and it's a pretty surefire way to be successful in the market, but most people can't do it.
1: So the the question is, uh, how do you know if you're at the top or if you're at the bottom? I mean, there's there's always going to be people yelling on TV telling you to, to buy or sell and you know now. You know China going to blow up tomorrow, or you know China going to grow super fast. Everything's going to be great. Like, h- how do you know? Or do you just really like not listen to any of it?
2: A lot of people tune it out. They call it noise. But you know, but but what you, you know, as the as the great German philosopher Nietzsche said, a man without a plan isn't a man. <laughs> so, so you have to have a plan. One way that individual investors can think about this is. What are the things that are important to me financially? And growing money is one, right? You guys want to, everyone wants to save for retirement, but few people do it. Um, and so you can look at basic a basic construct for saving money, and you systematically do it. It's not an incredibly sexy thing. It's what uh, it's what I sometimes refer to as like the Karate Kid School of Investing. Mm-hmm. You guys remember that movie?
0: Of course, Absolutely.
2: Where Mr. Miyagi's teaching uh, daniel how to do all the moves, and he's out there washing and waxing cars. It's like, wax on, wax off.
0: Yeah, I wax off but, a lot.
2: Right? So, 50, <laughs> so 50%. Do you know where 50% of your return comes from? Where? In the, in the market? Any idea?
1: Doing, doing nothing?
2: <laughs> Pretty much, right? You get 45% of it from uh, dividends right. and reinvesting, and roughly the other 3 to 5% from inflation. So if half the game is doing nothing. What does that tell you? It tells you that you want to you want to have stocks in your portfolio that pay steady that pay steady dependable dividends. Right. And so, you want to hold those and make those a foundation.
1: So you're you're staunchly a, a buy and hold guy.
2: No. I mean, well, you have to take things as they are. You don't want to buy and hold into a uh, and, and then be shredded. You have to be constantly be taking in information, experience and re- will essentially tell you, do I want to be a, a buyer when people are afraid or are they afraid for a good reason? Is China going to really going to fall in, in, into the sea and the economy is going to crash or is something else going on? And that's part of the, the investment process that you have to get at. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's the science of investing.
1: Did you have something Andrew? Cause I, yeah, I was going to say, so I mean, you've, you've done all of this research for the book, and I'm sure you've talked to a lot of successful and a lot of very unsuccessful people who are investors. Yep. So what did you change in your own approach to you know, Im- improve how you invest?
2: Well, I, I, I suppose I've always been – I was taught many years ago that uh, bad investors think of ways to make money and good investors think of ways to not lose money. And what the book did mm-hmm. was to really sort of teach me, it drove that point home for me. And it made me a much more appreciative of owning dividend stocks. It made me much more appreciative of the idea of looking for what I call like you know legacy stocks or century stocks, companies that you know will be around
1: mm.
2: for many, many years. I'm not talking five years or ten years, but maybe a hundred years. It made me obsessed with this fact, and I'm sure you guys have seen this, like if you put a dollar into the, into the Dow, like 1923, it's worth something like 9 or $10 million today, right?
0: Right, right.
2: And so if you can construct a large portion of your portfolio around these legacy stocks, and you have a huge chunk of them, you have a large chunk of money in dividends and a smaller percentage of money in growth stocks, it tends to be a pretty good thing over time. It's also made me much, you know, the book and the research also made me much more aware of, of the, uh, the importance of tuning out what I call noise. Noise, of course, is an economic term that refers to information information without any value. And there's so much of that now in our 24-7 wired culture that in, in my job as a, at, at Barron's, where I'm a columnist, I'm much more cognizant. Of only focusing on stuff that I know not have value and ignoring the stuff that doesn't. One of the lessons that I learned doing the book and that I saw, especially at work in the financial crisis, is how certain things are made truer by time and other things are just sort of crushed by it. And the guys who are really honed in on, on successful investing are focused on these, on these facts that remain true. What are some of those facts? Well, you want, to, you want to buy fear and you want to sell confidence.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: When everybody's really excited about a stock going up and the entire street will get itself worked up, probably a pretty good time to sell. At various points in Google's trading life, that's proven to be true. When people are so afraid of a stock that they think it will never go up, that tends to be a good time to buy. Bank of America is an example of that.
1: So uh, one case of this that uh, we we get asked a lot about IPOs Um, I tend to say like stay away from them because they're they're really hyped up and and a lot of them do bad but then you know I I know some people who are really interested in the GoPro one and I was like I I wouldn't personally so I I suggested not to I I think that they didn't and you know it did really well so how do you feel about IPOs and, and is that something you stay away from?
2: Well, yeah, yes and no. It depends on a, it Depends on the price. Hmm. So I, I participated. I was part of a team that took a company public, and so I loved that IPO. That was that was a fantastic experience. If you're able to get in, you know, at, at a preferred rate, this is before it goes to market. Do it every single time. It's free money. If you can't do that, then you have to sort of ask yourself. You know what's your what's your risk profile? Can you sit there in front of the machine and babysit it? I mean, you know, look at. Uh, I remember many years ago, a friend got a piece of Google, and remember that that think had some sort of funky IPO, and the thing came out at eighty or ninety bucks. Yeah, I and mean, the thing's trading now, roughly before the split. Let's say it's like eleven hundred dollars, and there are times with these IPOs. When they're, they're, the street always gets amped up about it because, you know, they get roughly 6% is, is the IPO fee, which is a, bi- a big chunk. Oh, wow. But a lot of times, you know, the, the, the enthusiasm around these sort of these concept stocks, and I, I'm not saying GoPro is Google, right? I mean, you got to – there's good stocks and, and and great stocks.
1: But we didn't know Google was Google in, until years later.
2: Well. We, we
1: didn't know it was so awesome.
2: But, but – you sort of did. Yeah,
1: you kind of
2: did. You, you sort of knew it was, a, it, it was like it, it was a game changer, right? I think the GoPro thing is pretty cool, and I think there are a lot of guys that are going to put that thing on their helmets and do it, you know, and it's, do whatever. Do. Yeah,
0: it's not going to change the world.
2: If It's not going to change the world. It, it might make for a couple of good episodes of Jackass, right? Right. But you know, th- this gets back to like you know, what's your discipline? What do you like? What do you put in your NutriBullet each day? Right? I bet you think about it and you've got certain ingredients that you like, the same thing is that successful investors do the same thing, right? If you can get in an IPO and you get in you know, at, the, at the price point, you know, so what happens is all the bankers get together with the company before they, before they actually price it and they say, we spoke to our customers that, you know, hither and yon, they like it, they think they might buy this much at this price and that's how the price is set. So let's say they set the price at 50 bucks. But the demand is like, they call it being oversubscribed. But the demand is three times larger than all the shares they have available for sale, right? So what that tells you is there's there's immediately a supply and demand Mm imbalance. If you have the type of account that allows you to buy at 50, you know the thing is going to open up at probably 75 or 80, right? That's free money. So the big pros, buy low and they sell high. Retail, John and Jane Investor, Again, they, we know they did the opposite and the IPO is like a very blatant example. They buy high and they sell low. And that's the problem. But if you get back to like what do you like? Like For many people, they shouldn't really buy a stock if it trades at more than 20 times earnings. Now some guys will say this is a really arbitrary multiple because like Amazon more or less over the years it has been a, a killer stock but it trades at an insane multiple. Right. Alibaba trades at a bigger multiple, but it's a growth stock. But if you develop these sorts of things that you look for, you know, 20 multiple, I want to see disagreement on the stock. Disagreement looks like, like some analysts like it, some analysts hate it. That keeps the trading flows kind of, kind of honest and creates that sort of natural wall of worry for stocks to climb. But if you can, if you can come upon a few simple things like that, you probably uh, keep yourself from getting scalped not all the time, but a good bit of the time.
0: But that's I, that's the problem, I think, for me is is you know we have listeners who and and just, and everybody people I talk to in my personal life they're always chasing that golden stock, and what There's happens no is they, stock. there is none, and they just keep getting burned along the way. And and but that's you know instead of just investing your money into a a nice uh, you know diversified portfolio, even if it's just like Vanguard funds or mutual funds or whatever you whatever you decide. You know, they're always chasing that like that next IPO, like oh, let's buy Twitter, let's buy Facebook, let's buy GoPro, or even uh like me. I I I'm just I did this a while back. I Howard Stern is moving over to Sirius. I bought Sirius. That was f- stupid. I mean, for lack of a better uh term, but this is like this is I feel like is there really uh a benefit to constantly doing this chasing?
2: If you're good at it, yes. There is. <laughs> I mean, But everyone, that's the
0: thing. Everyone wants to get good at it. Everyone wants, you know. Because
2: everybody wants to pop a pill. Yeah. The cholesterol go down. Or they want to think that they can, you know, do something without effort. Right. Successful investing is extremely demanding. And I'm not, it, it can be done successfully by people who are not professionals. But it takes discipline. And you've got to figure out Wall Street and the markets it's like it's like uh, you have to approach it as if you're going to visit a foreign country. And it has its own customs and its own way of doing things, its own way of speaking. And once you can sort of master these types of things, you've got a much better sense of success. But if you go there and you take the things that work in your normal life, in your civilian life, and you think they're going to work on the street, chances are you're going to get scalped.
0: Yeah, and speaking of uh, the words and and speaking – um, what are some of the most important words? Because you, you talk about this in your book.
2: I mean, I think the most important words any investor can know is that bad investors think of ways to make money and good investors think of ways to not lose money, right? Mm. What you were talking about, I call that the good investor rule. And it, it sounds sort of simple, but it's not. Because, in order to, if you're going into the market always, always thinking of ways to make money, you're off balance most of the time, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You're emotionally susceptible to things. You're going to see things, and you're going to think, "Oh my, oh my goodness, this thing's going to go off because it's going to." It, you know, Howard Stern's coming to Sirius. How can that? How can that not be huge? Right. But before you read it in the paper or heard about it, uh, you know, through another media channel, it was already known in the street. There are people who follow these things so closely that they know them like they know their children that they would already prepositioned in it. And so by the time the news breaks, it's news to everybody else but them, and they sell. And these guys are the ones with the big chunks, right? So if you go into the market looking for ways to not lose money, that's a much different kind of game. Because if you apply that metric to it serious and Howard Stern, you would, you would look at it and you go, well, how much better can it get? It's that simple question. How much better is it going to get? What is Howard Stern going to do? To move revenue and earnings at, at Sirius. And you think about that and you go, well, you know, you'd have to do something pretty insane to move the needle very quickly.
0: Yeah, he was taking the revenue.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, and you, look, you look at Taser, which is an even more recent uh, example.
0: That's a brand name?
2: Taser, yeah, the stun gun.
0: Yeah. Oh, I, I thought that that was just a name. I didn't know that was a brand name. It's oh, oh, no, like no. Kleenex. Yeah.
2: No, Taser is a uh, – look up the ticker symbol, T-A-S-R. Mm-hmm. So Taser, of course, is famous for making the, uh, for making the stun guns that cops use to, to knock guys down. But they also make this sort of wearable body camera. And in the, in, in the days after, after the Ferguson uh, shooting, Taser stock went bonkers. Why? Because people thought all the cops would now rush out and they were going to buy – uh, Tasers little body camera, in order to avoid these types of situations or you know create a digital evidence trail, stock was going completely like you know up eight percent, nine percent, ten percent, and so I took we took a look at it and, and lo and behold we had no idea that Taser even made these little digital cameras, but the stock was trading as if these digital cameras drove the business. Well, well the digital cameras only accounted for about. I don't know, seven percent of revenue. Huh. So that's not going to be a big enough business to, to change the entire uh, stock. That was just that was an example of, of a situation in which you want to do your research. You want to ignore the crowd and you want to be a seller.
1: So, on the whole mindset side with stocks, I, I think of not not that investing is gambling, but if you went to Vegas, you know you would you would only use five hundred dollars if you knew that if you lost it, it was okay and, and it wouldn't you know you're fine with it and so when you go to invest and you want to make sure that you're not you know selling because you need a food money and stuff, so you try and put the the money there so that you know, uh, you could withdraw like a flexible timeline, but people have this attachment to their money where it's like, well, that's the money I want to buy a house with in the future. So how do you, how do you reconcile that?
2: When I was a kid, I mean, my, you know, my dad told me to save 10% of my income and I did. And I once, I once met this guy named Jesse Hill who owned the, I think it was the, the largest black-owned insurance company in America. And I heard him speak when I was in college. And afterwards, he said to me, he he says, son, always pay yourself first when you get a job. He says, 10%, you'll never miss it. Just put it away. And I did. And it's grown into a tiny sum. And that's the most basic first step that you got to take. Because when you do that, either with an IRA or a 401k, you're paying yourself, not the government, right? Mm Mm-hmm it lowers your it lowers your taxable income. So why anybody would not do at least 10% is beyond me. Now let's move to the to the house part, right? You don't have to put all of your investments in tax in, in, in non-taxable accounts into an IRA for example. You might hold it in a taxable account. You might decide you want to buy certificates of deposit to put your housing money aside. You know, what we did when my wife and I bought our first place, we had mutual funds that were that we owned outright not in tax not in protected accounts and when the time came we cashed them out that's how we came up with their down with our down payment but the thing that trips up so many people when they when they invest is that people have no real sort of sympathy for the you know for themselves in the future we all have this instant gratification we want what we want now but people can't say that you know when I'm you know If you're 25 years old, you know, when I'm 60, you know, I I might need to have two or three million dollars to retire. They can't sort of comprehend it. And so you have to sort of develop this discipline. A long-term investor denies himself certain things or denies herself certain things. You've got to live a little bit less today in order to live better tomorrow. And if you can do that, it pays off because of all the investments, opportunities that are out there, Few, if any, are better than, uh, than the US stocks. It's just a fact. But you gotta be disciplined about it. And this issue of not being able to empathize with your future self is so severe that there's a professor at, uh, I believe he's in NYU, who's developed a technology that the banks and brokers' firms are now using. And so if you guys go in to talk to your financial advisor, they'll say, they'll sit you up in this little sort of uh, booth. And they'll throw on this computer program, and I pops a picture of what you guys might look like when you're 50 or 60 or 70. And what they have found is if you can sort of see yourself old and gray, um, that you that you save more. And that's one sort of psychological sort of hang-up people have,
1: you know. And that's inter- so, that's interesting because just I, not able to see, yeah, the future.
0: But that's the like I've wrestled with that for years, which was uh, you know <laughs> the idea that. I'm living right now. I'm making my money right now. Why, you know, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Why not spend it? And then, yeah. and all I've been doing for the past, uh, I don't know, since I was, since I've had a job since I was 13, is just killing myself. Now, like now, you know, uh, I mean, I was able to turn things around, but my 60 year old self, if I ever make it to 60, uh, is screwed. <laughs> I mean, for the most part. <laughs>
2: Are you guys saving the money, uh, doing the ten percent of your income?
0: Yeah, yeah, we're doing. I mean, I did it, but I, I started at thirty, you know, instead of starting at thirteen, which would have been awesome. I would have been I would have been killing it right now. But yeah, I mean, I've always known about this save yourself first thing. I just never did it. And I think I was a stubborn viewpoint of you know, uh, yeah, hey, you know, fuck my older self. Who cares? Sh- you know, he might not be around. I'm here now. I want to have fun. That's and that's how I thought really for a long time. Well,, and, I, and I've since changed, but yeah,
2: you can't kick yourself for that sort of stuff. That's just how it goes yeah that's uh you know that's getting smarter, so if you missed you know some of those years, you got two good things that uh come out of that. One is you probably weren't making that much money anyway, so the the real dollar amount is not huge that you missed out on. and the second great thing is. You're a lot wiser now through the experience, so you can save more. You know, the ten percent just is a minimum, right? You know, if you can do fifteen percent, do it. You know, my um, and this is like an extremely basic uh, act that anybody can do. But do you save your do you save your coins?
0: I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm really militant about that, actually.
2: So I I, I do too. We, and we have these we have these big coffee cans at the house. At the mm-hmm. end of the year, we take it to, the, to that. Uh, coin sorting machine yep and we and we get an amazon gift card and we use it for you know for books for the for the next year well my, my, my old man says why don't you start saving all your singles he says you'll never miss them and, you'll, and it'll really add up really quickly so we started doing that before you know it you know every time you get a single in your wallet put it in an envelope in your house or wherever, wherever you stash that stuff before you know it you're gonna have so much money, you're taking them to the bank to swap it out for hundreds. And so we started doing that. It was so easy with the ones that now we do it with fives, five and below. If, if it comes in to change, if we could change it at a restaurant or whatever, we save it. We never miss it. Interesting. And that money piles up so quickly that it's stunning. Because everyone has a lot of leakage in, 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 how, they spend their, uh, in how they spend their money. You go to Starbucks, you hit them with a twenty for their six dollar coffee, I mean you are gonna get a five and a one back. Save right. it. Right. And then you wanna talk about the sort of you know, having an experience, doing something authentic. At the end of the year, you see how much money you have. I guarantee you'll have at least a thousand dollars. So you, then you take that money and go do something that matters with it. You know, you don't have to go out, you have to reward yourself, you have to live. You can't sort of be some sort of ascetic monk who does nothing and has no fun. Sure. All these little things that you guys can do to save money, and then also go off and do something cool,
0: or invest it,
2: or invest it. I mean, you have to invest it. it, it you know, there's no way around it. I'm afraid, unless you're really wealthy and or you win the lottery, but you know, this investing—once you you know—to make money is hard, and to keep it is even harder. So when you get into the market, it's like going into a funhouse, and you know people sort of view the stock market like a like a Vegas casino. But you know when you do you know what the difference is between Vegas and Wall Street?
0: I uh, yeah the odds are not against you.
2: When you go to Vegas they buy the losers' uh drinks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to be serious.
2: No, I mean so, I mean but so yeah. here you go in like you go into the market to try to make money and you think you're gonna be a lot smarter than all these guys who literally sure. do nothing but look at spreadsheets and models and talk to investors and people active in the industry? Probably not. I mean, you, you wouldn't go out there and you know, try to square off against a major league football team because you get creamed. Right. But in the stock market, it's the same thing. You're going in there and you're gonna get creamed by guys who are like major league uh, football players. But nobody thinks that because the idea of going into the market and the idea of making money for doing almost nothing feels, feels pretty good. And so you have to like, like – I think about it and the way I tell people to think about it is like in judo. So you take a guy or a girl who's small, not very big, goes up against some bruiser. Because they understand you know, the body dynamics and movement and the other guy's you know, balanced. You see him get flipped all the time. Some old grandmother will throw a big guy down on his back in a judo match. And you've got to have the same mindset when you approach the market. You wouldn't go in there and go head on against Goldman Sachs because you will be crushed. All right. But there are other ways, you know, that you can do it, and they're simple. You want to look for stocks that pay dividends. You don't put all. You don't want to put all of your money in these sort of like you know, what I call a red 29 trade, like a roulette wheel where you're going to win big or lose big and you just stay at it and you, and you figure out, you read the books and you study and, that, you, and then you see what works and what doesn't work.
0: Right. That's if you want to do that though.
2: Well, you have to do it. Otherwise you're just going to be uh you're going to be roadkill.
0: If you want to get aggressive in the stock market, but what if you just want to go in and, and, you know, make your 7% and, you
1: know, invest in, IRAs and, you know, 401ks. You mean like, he means like, uh, like the Vanguard's total stock market fund. Yeah, I know,
2: but look, that's fine. But what I, what I came to conclude through the book is that a lot of people say that Mm -hmm. very, very few people do it. Right. You know, the, the stock market, even if you start out that way and you, you go into an, you go into the index fund or you do a total market, people tend to react to, Stock investing, or in the financial market, after a while, is if they're high on crack cocaine, it turns everybody into a nut. Right. <laughs> and and they say, "Well, I'm a long-term investor. I'm going to do this," but then they start seeing their friends making more money, or other things happen around them, and and they, everyone has financial pressures. It's, it's only the scale that's different, and they lose sight of that basic discipline. There's a there's a consulting firm in Boston called Dalbar. I quote some of their research in the book. When I when I came upon their stuff, to me it was like a gigantic light bulb went out went on. Um, what they found is that most investors only own stocks for like you know like three point eight years. They own bonds for a little bit longer, and they own you know balanced portfolios that is stocks and bonds for maybe 4.2 years. Now if you're not you know really deep in the financial uh, uh, in and out, you think okay that's fine, that's not a big deal. But what that really shows you is is that people are perpetually out of step with the natural cycles in the stock market. This is like salmon swimming upstream. A market cycle lasts five years. A market cycle is defined as a bull market begins, it dies. Remember that V? Yep. And then it's born again and it shoots back up. So individual investors are almost always out of sync with the natural flow and cycle on the stock market. They buy it towards the top of the V, they ride down the slope of hope. And they never and then, then when do they get back on? When the thing goes back up to another V, top of the V. Right. Professionals do the exact opposite. They do this through a variety of ways. You can read about people on in 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 certain books or see them on TV, and they seem to be possessed of this amazing sense of timing. They've never lost money. They're always make money. But it's not. It's it's just not. It's just not true. So what you have to sort of do is sort of steel yourself against a lot of the noise. Steel yourself against making impulsive decisions to buy this or sell that and try to align yourself with these market cycles if you can do the 50% of your money again inflation dividends the other 50% combination of skill and luck and if you can sort of figure out where you are in the cycle at any given time and I put a, a pretty easy to use graph at the back of the book a chart to help you you have to be asking these questions investing isn't something that you do and you say like you know, I'm a great guy, and I'm pretty smart. And I want to make a bunch of money. It just doesn't really work that way. The, the a successful investor is incredibly cynical and skeptical, hmm. not to the point hmm. of like being a misanthrope, but they're always looking at things and saying, "What don't I know?" During the credit crisis, I was I was with the head of one of the major investment banks, and we were talking about a variety of things. And I said, "What keeps you awake at night?" And he says. To me, what I don't know, which at the time when he first said it, I thought that's just a bunch of nonsense. You know, the the guy has access to everything; there's nothing he doesn't know. But as we spent more time together, and the more time I thought about what he said, I realized he wasn't—he wasn't sort of pulling my leg or giving me some sort of of a BS answer. And if you sort of have that sort of "what don't I know" mindset, it'll keep you from losing a bunch of money because what's the What's well, the one thing that all in, all very successful investors have in common? It's not that they're rich. It's that they don't ever lose a lot. Hmm. Retail investors, when they buy up at the top of that V, their minds, their eyes are filled with dollar signs. They're going to get super rich. They're going to go buy a Lamborghini. They're going to, you know, they're going to go to Tahiti. Um, and so when things start to go down, they start to. They start to freak out a little yeah, bit.
0: panic a little bit, yeah.
2: They panic and they're like, Well, most people can't admit that they were wrong. Right. You can't be like, Well, this is gonna, this is temporary, you know, and, the, and then you'll read someplace, um, you know, stock XYZ is going down, you know, as for profit taking. What? what is profit taking? I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. And then it be like, profit taking then turns into like major investors are you know, or readjusting or it's being whacked because of some sort of you know weakness in the dollar, or whatever it is. All these reasons come out and they sound pretty reasonable. And sometimes that's all it is. And the stock does bounce back. But what most of these big investors do is when stocks go down, they dump them. Hmm. So there's the late Ace Greenberg, he was one of the one of the great traders on the street. He ran Bear Stearns and then he was the vice chair of JP Morgan. So Ace had this rule where like, if your stock goes down and other stocks are going up, you're done sell it and don't buy it back. And he would call you into his office to make you account for, for, uh, for your sins. If you didn't do just that. And his, his whole idea was he he never fell in love with these stocks. And if one stock went down, he'd find another one to go up. That's simple. Right. Most investors do the exact opposite. They fall in love with these things. And, uh, you know, love, uh, Love, love is finance, a... and in life is very volatile. Yeah,
1: that's
0: true. That's true. So, uh, all right. So the, so the book, The Indomitable Investor, where can people find that?
2: It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all major uh, bookstores. It's coming out in paperback uh, in about two weeks. And if any of your reader, read, uh, listeners read Mandarin, it was just published in China.
0: Perfect. <laughs> And, uh, all right, are you on a – you have a website, social media, your
2: column? Uh, I'm on Twitter at SM Sears. That's like SM underscore Sears. Uh, You can read my columns at Barron's, and uh, that's where you guys can find me.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: You bet, guys. hope it
0: helped. Yeah, I absolutely did. And and I think uh, I have to. Um, I think people should check out the book. We're going to throw the book into uh, our toolbox, which you can find at slash toolbox. Because there's always books that we recommend in there, and that's be perfect for that. And if you have any questions, you can email us at Matters at gmail.com. And of course, if you like the show, please subscribe to our podcast. And we throw a little thing at the end of the show now. Tell your friends about the show. Uh, and <laughs> uh, we also. If you guys like the show and you, and you do subscribe, and we hope that you do, please leave a review. Uh, if you, and then we will send you some stuff. Let us know through the email if you've left a review or not. But uh, I'm going to read a quick review from Aspen Zone uh, from the United States from iTunes. Uh, second best time to start is today. Five stars. We've all heard the adage that you're supposed to start saving for your future when you're young. Well, the second best time to start is today. I unfortunately haven't done the best job of following the adage, but I am starting today. These guys are great with dissecting the confusing world of economics, personal finance, and most importantly, building my wealth. Definitely worth the time to give to this to give this podcast a listen. Thank you Aspen Zone, and that's perfect. It's a perfect review for today. Just just start if you if you haven't started, start today. Uh, and that's the message we want to get out there again. Visit our website, ListenMoneyMatters.com. And that's it. Steve, thanks so much again for being on the show.
2: Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. All
0: right, Andrew. Thanks again for hanging out with us. And we look forward to the next episode. So later.
1: Later, man.
2: Please tell your friends about this show. Thank you